0: We at the PA have no intention to opt out. If the NBA decides that they want to opt out, they are welcome Mm -hmm. to opt out. June 30th would be the end of the season. We have an agreement for another year. Mm -hmm. While it is important and critical because I like to meet deadlines and I'm just as competitive as our players are, Mm -hmm. I also recognize that it's not about giving up you know, something that's critically important to meet a deadline that's really quite fictitious, to be honest.
1: Mm That's real. This is Andre Iguodala. This is Evan Turner.
2: We're trying to get to the true essence of not just basketball, but life. And that means something, 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 something.
1: It is like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger or you will miss all that heavenly glory.
2: That level of understanding has been taken out of the game. What's up, y'all? Welcome back to Point Forward. Another episode. I'm Andre. Y'all know E.T. Andre, what's up, bro? I got two
1: random facts for you today.
2: All right. I like the intro. Switching it up for episode 22, huh?
1: You know, I'm just trying to keep the listeners on their toes. You know, never never do the same thing twice.
2: All right. What's your two random
1: facts? The day this episode drops is the anniversary of the first time Jimi Hendrix ever lit his guitar on fire uh, on stage during a concert. You probably seen the photos from it. It was pretty crazy. Legendary Jimi Hendrix was a man. Uh, I think he's part of the Twenty Seven Club as well. And then what's also the 27 too, Club?
2: what's the Twenty Seven Club?
1: Uh, the Twenty Seven Club is uh, when someone like the greatest artist in the world died at the age of twenty seven.
2: Oh, shit. so. It was like,
1: yeah, it's like Amy Winehouse, Jimi Hendrix.
2: When did that one dude die? Mac Miller. Hole- no know- <laughs> um, Kid Cuddy. Kid Cuddy. Kid, Kid, Cudi, Kid Cudi did his uh. Kid Cudi took his beat and and uh, had that song on Kanye. Him and Kanye used a uh, sample. Kurt Cobain. When, when, where, when? How old was he when he died?
1: Kurt Cobain died at twenty seven as well. That's that's yeah. That that documentary, Salt Bleach, is worth watching. Another fun fact to have for you today is uh, on this day, you know, the episode drops. Your Arizona Wildcats won their first and only NCAA men's basketball national championship in the year 1997. I thought y'all had way more titles, right?
2: So I remember that because my brother was a big. Uh, we were both big Arizona fans. I was a fan of the uh, shoes might of be Mike Bibi had on, but I, w- I was a Miles Simon fan and I w- my brother was. You know, he was hip to like who would translate good in the NBA. So I thought Miles Simons was better, but my brother was like, no, Mike Bibby, the one. And I didn't really get it, but Mike Bibby ended up being one of my favorite players. Um, and I was a huge Miles Simons fan. So I definitely remember that. We we should have won a 2001 championship against Duke. Um, but um, I could talk about college refs all day long. Jason Gardner got tackled. I'm talking about tackle late in the second half. Uh, Duhan, I think, jumped on top of him took him out and that would have been his fifth foul it was do hunter j will i think it was j will that would have been his fifth foul no call turnover bucket we lose the game so like i know gilbert is always on rj about letting uh white Mike get off shout out to mike dunleavy assistant gm um you know it's gonna be interesting this summer to see what happens with the warriors current gm and what's going to happen in that situation. Hopefully, Bob comes back, but who would be his replacement? We should do a pod on that. I'm going to leave it alone. We're playing well right now,
1: but um, I love it all. Bro, you might be mad at me, but back in the day, I Mm -hmm. know like, the Fab Five, like, that Duke team from 01 to me, that was like, if they were to call that a Fab Five, I wouldn't be mad at it. You know what? I ain't going to front. I was never really a Duke fan. But that team was thorough, bro. But, His only year, Chris Duhon was good. Yeah, but
2: I, my favorite Duke team was William Avery's team. They you had Elvin you know, William Avery, Corey McGetty. I think they, I think Maryland ended up winning it that year. Yeah. Like they, yeah, Maryland ended up winning it. But that Duke team, I was, I was, I was because we, I don't know why I love winning. So Avery.
1: thorough, bro. The ACC was so thorough back in the early days. That's real. Yeah. Man, the Big East and ACC too, though. At the same time, I feel like those are the only conferences. I, as I'm a Big Ten dude, but like them ACC Big East games kind of got you ready for NBA for real. Because that's at the what time, I'm talking like, about. Like they're giving out like 75, 80 points a game, which was a huge thing back in the day. You went to the ACC or Big East, you had to be able to score, dribble, and like be thorough offensively. And that was it's one same- thing where like. The Big Ten, you know what I mean? It was it's way different because you you that's move why into top, yeah you move into the pros and and the ACC is up and down like you expect.
2: Right, that's why I didn't go to the Big Ten. Like when I was coming out of high school, like I didn't know I was going to the league, but I knew for me to be show my skill set and get on the court, like I wasn't known as a shooter, so I needed to get up and down. I knew I couldn't be in the Big Ten, so I knew I was going to mm-hmm. SEC, Big East, or um end up in the pack so it, it worked yeah. out um yeah but, I was but, like so, yeah.
1: yeah I was so like naive I just figured like a coach puts you in the right position so like I, I didn't like look at like conferences I was just like all right bro like a coach want to win he's naturally going to play the people the right way and, like we're gonna get up and down and run and like I guess I didn't take that in consideration going to the Big Ten I just got lucky enough to go play for like that model who's trying to score 90 points a night you know what I'm saying
2: but your handle was so crazy. And I, I had a handle, but I didn't really know how I could control the game like I do now. Um, I wish I would have knew that in college. Like, hindsight is crazy. But it worked out. It worked out. So I'm not
1: complaining. No, it but, worked out perfectly fine for you. It, Don't worry. It, it, it worked out. It worked out. I'm not I'm not tripping. I'm not tripping.
2: Um, but yeah, jumping in. Today's guest is one that I think people um, who love when we get into that, you know, our business bag, they will definitely enjoy it executive director of the MBPA, Tamika Tramaglio. I've always struggled with that. And I think I finally, I've never got,
0: it.
1: I've never I never finally got it. I finally got it. I've never heard that said right one time. Good for you.
2: Uh, we, we had a special conversation, really special conversation that encapsulates everything that the new media is about and everything that we think this podcast can bring to the table. Um, so, you know, With all that being said, uh, I think it's a special week. Friday, March 31st, I think it's at 11.59 p.m. March 31st is the deadline for the CBA agreement. And I'm getting hit up every which way about that situation. Uh, Are we close? Are we far? And, um, you know, you you all got a sneak preview on our social channels. Um, And so. This is where I remind you to look out for us on TikTok, IG, Substack and the usuals at Point Forward. Um, So we dropped some um, previews of the conversation, um, especially with the remarks from uh, Commissioner Adam Silver on Wednesday, March, what would that be? 29th. Um, So it's a special week with the timing and everything. Um, I was able to shoot out on an off day to New York City, go to NBPA offices and uh, have a great conversation. I think we got uh, some a great back topics as well for this week. So let's jump into it. Point forward. All right, ET. uh, First topic is the CBA. All right. We got some hours Mm -hmm. left. I think we got about 12 hours left from when we post this. Um, Are you optimistic or pessimistic about it getting done? Um, Adam had a statement saying, if it's not done, they will opt out today. And uh, Tamika's response uh, was uh, the players, association intentions are to not opt out. Um, But I will say that Adam's sentiments were could be taken out of context because if you look further into the total, the totality of the remarks that he made, he also said, like, we still got April, May and June 30th. So technically the real deadline is June 30th. Um, So, you know, how public perception can throw us off in terms of getting a deal done. It's like, it's, it's like that extension. E.T., in my opinion, when you can sign your extension early, like all the Max guys will get their extension day one. They can extend. Right. But you got other guys like I had my situation in Philly where I was offered 60 on my extension just before season four. And I turned it down and everyone thought I was crazy. And I ended I I think shout out to Gilbert Arenas. He was one of the first bloggers um, for the NBA. Uh, He was early on you know, blogging, which was the pre- Form of podcasting, and he was talking about how Ben Gordon and myself should have took the money, and we didn't have any leverage, so on and so forth. But it turns out I ended up signing for eighty, um, and so it worked out for me. Doesn't always work out, as we know. We can go down a long list of line, but with, with saying all that, I want to know your thoughts.
1: Man, I I always thought my my natural thought with Adam was I believe he said that he didn't want to go into you know um, a lockout a few years back. You know what I'm saying? I think he's always spoke on that to try to, um, you know, keep smooth water. So saying that, like, you know, we're definitely going to opt out coming this way or coming that way. I just feel like that was just a bunch of errors trying to, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Rattle or, you know, kind of put out some type of media, you know, perception to really, you know, get more leverage. You know, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, for lack of better terms, uh, dick swinging contests are, you know, bravado you know trying to you know call people's blocks and stuff so i think that's mm-hmm. the case and a lot of times you know five or ten years ago i think something like that would have made the union super nervous but i feel like we we've taken so many leaps and bounds over this past decade and a lot of uh you know is you know it's not the same group that used to shine shoes type shit you know what i'm saying so i think uh you know, is is half of the union trying to you know get leverage on negotiation, and half of it being like, yo, there could be not so much fear, but you know what they're asking for. You know, because what like you sh- said prior to, Once you give up something, you're never going to get it back. You know what I me? Mean?
2: Correct. And I'm, 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 yes, yeah, and and you know, I sit on the board, and um, you know, I'm no, I'm no I'm no longer officially on the board, but I still participate in the discussions, and I'm very heavily involved. So you know, I would never speak on it, but there's some interesting things that are happening. I think that are, uh, forward thinking in terms of, you know, um uh, the league and the players, um, I'm really looking forward to it, but at the same time to speak on, you know, this deadline and how you leverage it with being on either side, we do have a TV deal that needs to get done. And I've, I've been very curious as to, should the TV deal be done before or after the CBA is done? And if you're a if you're a um, distribution company or a streaming company, whether you be Disney, which probably has the biggest deal with the league, with ESPN and ABC, or uh, if you're Turner, or if you're one of streaming companies, I think you really want to know that there's an agreement in place and that there won't be um, a lockout or there won't be um, three months of basketball not being played. It'll be interesting to see what happens because I know that we still actually technically have three more months to get the deal done, but I think everyone wants to get it done and and hopefully it will. Point forward. Yes, yeah, so, and so March is still Women's History Month and ET, we've been um, bigging up women all month and we would continue beyond the month, similar to Black History Month. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But... Caitlyn Clark Cold G. Like we've been singing her yeah. praises for a while and she just keep proving us right. So Caitlyn, we really appreciate you Megan, us look like we know what we're talking about. Um she yeah. made history last week, as you can see as you spoke. Sorry. your Ohio State women took an L. I was watching closely.
1: No, it's all good. I mean, it's it's been a hell of a run. Um the women's team they put on, I mean, but yeah, Caitlin Clark is a dog. I remember you, we were talking the other day, you're trying to compare her to like some of the stuff that Steph does. If she were like a male, right? But I feel like she's a she's like six feet right now. She's probably doing. I want to be low. she's doing some crazy, crazy shit, bro. Right? The, the forty point triple double is unbelievable. It's
2: they first the ever, stream,
1: right? Yeah, first ever NCAA tournament, men's like or be, women's. Yeah, I feel like it should be the first ever in who who have a forty point. Probably Jerry West had a forty point triple double sometime. Ooh, you and your I bag? Probably, I feel like Jerry West would have a 40-point triple double if if anybody were to have. Just, just based off the book, but Caitlin Clark is... I think they're going to win the title. Ah, South I South hope Carolina. they do.
0: Yeah, no, obviously. no, South
1: Carolina. We bugging. <laughs> South Carolina.
2: Hopefully I can tap in. I'll be in and out. I got so many business things going on right now that are going pretty mm-hmm. solid, and I'm trying to just make sure to help. But I, I will be having it in, on the screen and checking it out.
1: How's business? Booming. Mm-hmm. Booming, booming,
2: point, forward.
1: All right, now we're to our down for that,
2: clown for that section as we normally have where uh, ET and I normally agree on a lot of things as we have in our topics, but not everything. Uh, Down for that, clown for that is where we take a stance on trending subject and decide whether we are down for it or have to clown it. And this week, it's interesting news. We've been tracking this for quite some time. The Lamar Jackson situation. And Robert Kraft, who has been f- frequent in the hip-hop space. We saw him on stage when, I think it was, who was rapping? It was Meg the Stylin, or was it Cardi B? I
1: forgot who was it you... was, but they tried to get him up out of there right after that. Bro, bro, they, bro they tried to like, cancel him. They tried to cancel him right They finna throw this little case on him. <laughs> that was interesting. Uh, <laughs> I, I
2: was bro, like, All
1: right, it's, about, it's time to take your ass back to the temple. Don't hang out with me. <laughs> and
2: Robert Kraft has said that uh, Meek Mill texted him that Lamar Jackson wants to come to the New England Patriots. But he did state this up to Coach Bilichek, who also acts as GM to green light it. Uh, Asante Samuel, interesting. uh, Philly standout. He is now a football analyst. uh, Very, very smart, high IQ um, athlete. uh, Says to stay away. Um, Would you be down for that or clown for that?
1: Go ahead. I'm I'm down for the homie, like just hitting up, like yo, that's where you want to go. Cool. I'm not down with 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 buddy putting out to the public. You know what I'm saying? Like I don't Mm -hmm. think uh, somehow, man. And like I'm a meat mill fan, but it's always he always end up in like a situation where it just ain't his business. Like you know what I mean? And it make him look crazy. Like you know what I'm saying? Like anytime I speak truth on someone else,
2: it always gets taken out of uh, context. And so like I like when you say it, but I. If I said that, it would be turned to something different. But. Until,
1: yeah, but you might as well say it out loud because the nigga's saying that behind your back.
2: <laughs> no, true story. I'm just saying, like, I, yeah. I have thoughts like, huh, this is interesting. Like, how is this turning out? And it always or turns just, out, like you said.
1: Yeah, but I'm not mad at me. You know how I many people we didn't talk to that jumped up in our business? They ain't got no damn business. I'm, I'm about to text somebody for you. Like, nah, like, he uses... He looked out for the homie. You feel me?
2: No, 100%. 100%. But I, I do... What I like most about Meek is like the what they did to him and how he's been able to bounce back, and uh, and I'm sure he's very appreciative of uh, the assistance he's got from you know certain individuals, especially Hove. Shout out Hove first, and then you know Michael Rubin yeah. and Robert Kraft. Yeah. But so so, are you down for it? Or are you clowning it? Is that what you're saying? Man, I'm. I'm <laughs> I, I, I,
1: man. It's so many layers. It's so many layers. Like you don't want you don't want to play for Belichick, dog. Interesting. Oh. Yeah, I don't know, bro. I'm I'm down for what Meat did. Look out for the homies. Hit the homie. It should it should just never went public. I don't even know how that went public.
2: Yeah, it's a long conversation. This is just uh, is you down for it? I'm, I think I might. I, I got to roll with Asante. I'm,
1: I'm down for a black dude in in New England trying to turn it up. I would like that. Right after we saw time how we ready. saw how
2: that happen. I'm arguing it. We saw how that happen when we tried that a couple years ago. But he ain't been back. He ain't snapped the ball since.
1: Who Cam Newing?
2: <laughs> yeah, when the last time he snapped it's the
1: probably, ball? Yeah, it's probably because of his damn Instagram captions. What what language is he speaking in?
2: Bro, he's mad about the dreads hanging out the helmet. <laughs> All right, it's, I call that a draw. If we had to.
1: I'm fine with the drawing, drawing. bro. I knew what you said, man. I'm trying to it's, it's
2: like Meek said, Mill. Man. It's some it's it's Robert Kraft not understanding the, uh, the the you know the code of the game. It's you know Sante, I like his IQ, I'm going with him. It's you know Lamar's a runner, and so there's a situation fitting with Belichick. It's just so it's so many layers in it. Yeah, all right. We're going draw. And uh that's there, there it is. Um, before I before we jump into you know, an incredible conversation. Um, I was dead today. And so I want to give a big shout out to my man Mustafa Shakur and his energy drink, which is black owns called pure fuel. Uh, There is caffeine in here and I'm not a caffeine guy, um, but it's all natural. It was no sugar plant based, which is my steez. I took this Mm -hmm. about like 20 Mm -hmm. minutes Mm ago. And I feel like this is one of the, this is, I've been in my bag um, with my, vocabulary my verbiage my tone my energy and uh oh he got these energy snacks too energy bites i had some peanut butter joints i am not an investor in this company either point forward all right now let's uh get into our com- incredible conversation um today we are joined by a woman i have worked very closely with the past couple of years she she helped us um as a consultant before joining us um when i was in my role as vice president of the national basketball players association Tamika. Tremaglio is the executive director of the NBPA and is our main voice when it comes to conversations about us players and how we can build more equitable partners with NBA governors. This is going to be one of our best conversations yet. So I'm hoping and I'm knowing that y'all going to love it. So I'm not going to keep talking. Let's get to our conversation with NBPA executive director, Tamika Tremaglio. So Tamika, Just walk us through how you got on point forward here today
0: first of all, thank you very much. This is such a privilege. So thank you for doing this. You know, I, I, it's a really great question, Andre, because the reality is, I don't know if you, and I know you're a big book reader in The Alchemist. I remember they said, when you make a decision, the universe sort of conspires to make things happen. And I, I do feel like that's essentially what happened. So mm-hmm. I you know, started, as you know, in fact, I think I worked with you almost 11 years ago um, when we were involved in the investigation and I was at Deloitte. Mm-hmm. And then And that was sort of my first exposure to the MBPA. I had worked with the NFLPA some time before. So fast forward, you know, 12 years and I find myself in this position. But predominantly, I think I was aware of this role, but I was in a position at Deloitte that, quite frankly, I was a year out of potential retirement. Mm -hmm. And when they started the search and I kind of thought, well, I at this point, you know, it's been 26 years. You got to sort of see it through to the finish. Right. And then COVID hit. Mm -hmm. And then the opportunity presented itself once again. And as I was sitting at home watching George Floyd and all the things that were happening there, I kind of thought like, I need to serve my purpose. Like now is the time to sort of take what I've learned and do something different with it and, and serve a purpose, do something that I would be really proud of. You know, when you turn 50, you sort of start to think to yourself, you got less days left and so you want to make sure that you're really making an impact. And so here I am. That's so be- incredibly grateful.
2: It's beautiful to hear. And this is hearing you speak on George Floyd and uh, around COVID. Um, I was just reading about um, Thompson and starting uh, aerial investments and they have a new fund and leading that charge. And it was centered around George Floyd. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we had a lot of. Um, Fortune 500 companies talking about giving back to our community mm. and making those promises. And, you know, just hearing you speak on that and speaking on being an entrepreneur, uh, Fortune 500 companies running Deloitte. How many people did you
0: lead at Deloitte? We had 17,000 17,000 that wow. you were so, in charge of. Yeah, the and, largest in the world for Deloitte, actually.
2: The world, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to go back <laughs> to your childhood and... You know, talk to us about the things that happened in your childhood centering around uh, being an entrepreneur, checking the cash register, you know, uh, making sure the bar is good, you know, making sure the family of entrepreneurs are well. And, you know, your background with your mother going to college Mm -hmm. while having you and your aunts, uncles and grandma, you know, how you just took hold of the. Uh, the family business.
0: Yeah. So thank you. I, I guess, as you know, I did grow up in a really small town, very, you know, a tobacco farm sort mm-hmm. of right outside the house, right on the Chesapeake Bay. And there wasn't a lot that you were exposed to, to be quite honest. So my family owned a ton of businesses where we had a tire shop, we had a bar, we had a um, speech therapist practice. And for me, it was about, I learned immediately that it was really about serving others. You know, my mm-hmm. dad would drive down the road and he was waving and everyone would always say like, Oh, He speaks to everyone. And I learned that it was really about sort of what can you do for someone else? And it wasn't really about you. And so anything that I'm doing from my experiences is about how can I use this to serve other people? And, you know, some of that is about being present, Mm -hmm. right? And being present here. I would watch my dad, like there could be millions of things going on. And he was present. He was in the moment with you. He thought about how he was going to communicate, what he could give to someone. And it taught me really at a young age that that's what was truly important. Little did I know that you'd see that playing out in real life every single mm-hmm. day about mm-hmm. serving other people and being present in the moment and looking at what you can do for them as opposed to what you can take. The world is so full of, you know, taking things. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I recognize that money, quite frankly, was a metaphor for paying for something. But mm-hmm. the reality is you had so much more to give than taking people's money. Um, and so I think that taught me that at a really early age.
1: And is that where your your phrase "reimagine the possible derived from? Yeah, I'd love to
0: say it did, but the, you're exactly right. Those situations, like, you know, imagining all of the things that we can do, we sort of get in this mode of we've got to do things a certain way because it's been done that way before. Instead of thinking about sort of what the possible is and reimagining what that is.
1: So when you're working, you know, originally um, on a, with the first MBPA to go over, the, you know, the Hunter Air. During that time, I know you said that you, you know, love working with numbers and everything because you can help find solutions. Was there anything that you foreshadowed to be like, Hey, they messed up here or this wasn't good here? One day could I jump in and be able to, you know, find great solutions for these individuals?
0: Yeah. And so, you know, I'd love to say, Evan, quite honestly, I don't think I was quite reimagining the
1: possibility. <laughs> yeah, was, it was yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: but I will say that for certain, I recognize that there was so much more that could be done. Mm-hmm. And quite honestly, I think that's how I ended up continuing to work with the MBPA and then to work with the WMBPA, because I really did see where I could make an impact, where I could use the things that I was doing and apply it. So we did, Mm -hmm. you know, pro bono work for the W for a long time, Mm -hmm. too, just to make sure we were giving back and that I was utilizing my expertise to do that.
2: So, uh, you know, I want to jump straight into, um, you know, this is a unique pod for us because, you know, it's centered around sports, culture, a lot of tech and business. Mm -hmm. And here we are in the midst of the, you know, the CBA agreement, which is probably... Uh, it, well, not probably, it is the foundation and is pr- and, and it is probably the most uh, scrutinized uh, piece of work on both sides. And it will be, um, you know, is, there's going to be a microscope over it over the next two or three years. And there's always, you know, uh, what do you call the foreshadowing uh, in terms of who won, who got over on who, you know, all those things. And so I want to really dive into that. Um, What has been or what was your um, what was that feeling like reading the CBA for the first time when you were introduced to this role or having the opportunity to take over this role?
0: First of all, I will tell you the initial CBA was, you know, a few pages like we even looked at it the other day. It's, you know, micro in comparison to where it is now. So over 500 pages. And the reality is it brought in the point that we talked about earlier. It was like reimagine the possible, you know, what I read through it. There were things that I was going over that I thought, gosh, that's pretty antiquated. And we shouldn't be doing things that way. And I thought about, you know, the players' freedoms and, you know, things that they should be considering and why is this in here and things like that. And I remember the first day I actually had a conversation with the general counsel. He's like, oh, well, we've got all these other things that we've got to take care of first. And I'm like, no, no, we got to like just reimagine if we sort Mm -hmm. of redid all of of these things. Mm So, you know, it was always this moment of like what could be as opposed to what was. And it's harder to move people from what was, particularly when they become comfortable right Mm -hmm. and so trying to get them to someplace else is really what i think has been the most challenging
1: Yeah, cj McCollum, the union president he said that um you put all the players in positions to think like a ceo Mm -hmm. and the next move and then really you know open up the game and uh he said anytime you can open it up and you know try to bring in more revenue that's at the forefront of conversation so i think that's been the number one thing he's uh you know appreciate at least from the union president side of it but um I want to comprehend on uh, you know having that mindset to the forefront but changing the narrative of the players as well. Um, yeah. I remember the last lockout when it occurred in 2011-2012. Our social media and people on the street were kind of blaming us for the lockout. And yeah. I was like, it's kind of unique where you're in a world where, no disrespect to anybody, but the millionaires are being blamed and the billionaires are the defendants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I, I think, obviously, we were... Since that time, we moved forward as a unit and as a league. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what part do you want to attack in that sense to really change the narrative and keep the media out of it and keep it classy?
0: Yeah, no, it's an excellent point. And I think when you talk about how do we change the narrative, there has been a lot of discussion around being a partner. You know, I hear from Adam, we are in a partnership. I hear from other people, we're in a partnership. Well, a partnership, a true partnership (laughs) means that you are sort of on the same playing fields, right? Mm -hmm. No pun intended. And to some Mm -hmm. extent, I feel like it, even though a lot of people say a lot of things, it's really so important that we actually put our actions behind that. Mm -hmm. So that then means that you are thinking about how are we leveling the playing field? How are we rewarding our greatest asset? Mm -hmm. How are we making it such that they can move and have freedom of movement? You know, All of those things that are critically important, but it's not just about changing what we say. It's about in what we do and our actions and how that's being represented and quite frankly, how it really plays out. And I think that's probably the biggest challenge, honestly, in this CBA is that, you know, it, it's not all of the issues around economics, right? Everybody can yeah. get behind the numbers. Mm-hmm. The reality is this is about, you know, player freedom, you know, yeah. getting their respect Having equitable relationships. If our governors can do it, why can our players do it? You know, that type of thing. If our governors can advertise for sports betting, why can our players advertise for sports betting? If our governors can invest, why can't we invest? That's all. And that, surprisingly to me, is a much tougher road than telling someone that you want to be paid more, et cetera. There's none of that going on. Mm-hmm. It really is about sort of equity. And that's yeah. what our players want. They recognize that they should also be seen equally as we're growing the pie together in this partnership.
1: You know, like what Dre said, he, he mentioned on a pod a few times. He's like, there's been opportunities to invest in that he can't partake in due to the simple fact that the governors of the teams are investing in it. And it's like, some of these big money plays or some of these moves that are done like what else are you supposed to do with the money It's kind of like just shutting you out of all avenues and areas in order to continue to make money for your family and you know not so much have to be a worker
0: that's right and yeah. that's that's part of, <laughs> that's that's part of yeah. reimagining <laughs> the possible right yes. like I think that obviously when we started playing the game the players weren't making the type of money where they could invest alongside our governors mm-hmm. well now, They are. And quite frankly, they have the wherewithal, they have the resources to recognize that, you know, what am I going to do when the ball stops bouncing? Where should I be putting my money? What should I be thinking about? How do I create generational wealth? And that does mean taking on investments, et cetera. And in the instances where a governor is invested in Amazon, you shouldn't invest in Amazon. Are you serious? Like, how could you have any impact or independence rules or regulatory requirements? It's not real. We are all you know, ready and willing to support things that are real. If there's a real conflict, if there's a real opportunity circumvention, we obviously want to avoid it, mm-hmm. but that's not what we're talking about here. And so it's about reimagining what we can do better together. And I will tell you, many of the governors are on board too. They want to see this happen too. Many of our players have great relationships with their governors that they're talking about investments and in what they could and should mm-hmm. be doing. So it's just a matter of making sure we're opening up the gates so that those things can actually happen.
2: And And I want to speak to yeah. the difficult position that you're put in as you know, an African-American female uh, ahead of um, 450 uh, first-generation wealth uh, young men with no real financial education before they get here. So 19, 20 years old, just being thrown a boatload of money. And you're told to protect them. And he, it, was, it came to my mind just recently Adam Silver is known as a player's commissioner, Mm -hmm. which is very beneficial to his profile um, as a commissioner on both sides. You know, you can leverage that. But for you, um, talk to me how it's been pros and cons um, from your uh, vantage point, because I don't think you have the similar, you know, perception because you're not allowed to be friendly with the other side. Mm-hmm. Um so kind of talk to us about how you've been able to navigate through that.
0: So it is interesting. I guess, you know, first you are right that that's what Adam is known for. He's incredibly proud of it. I think our players are proud of the relationship that they have with them. And so Mm -hmm. to some extent, I think that that's good, right? Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. you certainly want to make sure that even in most business relationships, it's personal, right? Mm -hmm. And so the fact that he can have those relationships with individuals is great. What is challenging is it's very different than any other, you know, sport in the U.S., right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it does put a little bit more light between me and the players, because they've most of the people that have either been in the union or have been at the nba have been there for a long time Mm -hmm. right so they know everything they know about relationships they're able to make things work to shift things very differently and that's really helpful for our players and so we never want to sort of let that go and i will tell you adam has been incredibly kind to me and supportive Mm -hmm. but i also recognize that I really have a job to do. And when, to your point, you have players that are coming in many of whom may be first generation in terms of wealth. And it is important to me that I'm exposing them because I think what we get lost on, because all of us sort of grew up in a place where you got an A that meant you were doing fine. If you made X dollars, that meant you were doing things. We're always measured, right? Everything Mm -hmm. is is being measured. Mm -hmm. The reality is though, it's about exposure. You have no idea what you don't know until you've been exposed to it, right? Yeah. And so the best thing that I can do, I don't need to sit them down in front of, you know, financial statements and walk their balance sheet, although we are going to do that this summer. <laughs> um, but I also recognize it's about exposing them to the right people who mm-hmm. can tell them the stories that they can relate to, that they can get as mentors and help to guide them. And that's really how I'm trying to do it so that it's a little bit more organic mm-hmm. as opposed to sort of pushed upon people because that never works either, right? It's about sort of being able to relate to individuals and learning what you should and could be doing and exposing them to something different.
2: Mm-hmm. And and how do you find that balance? Because uh, you go back in history and you just, or uh, you speak on the perception of the relationship between the union head and the league head, um, and you go to Billy Hunter and David Stern, and they would, you know, there were rumors of, you know, Billy would always fall into David's lap and kind of fall into like, yes, 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 yes. yes. And we never fought back hard enough. Uh, and then, you know, when we got the first uh, African-American female uh, executive director for our union, Michelle, who's a you know tough lawyer from D.C., you know, you heard the opposite narrative where she's too tough. Mm-hmm. You know, so and I spoke about Adam being, you know, he's he's able to maneuver on both sides. Mm-hmm. How do you find a balance of I'm tough, but I'm still Building a partnership with the league.
0: Yeah, so, you know, I do believe strongly in being kind and respectful Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. one another, right? I also appreciate the value of relationships. You know, for the last 26 years, being in consulting, that's what it was about. People tended to do business with people that they liked. You Mm -hmm. know, all things being equal, that's what Mm -hmm. they did. Mm -hmm. And so having that relationship with the league and understanding their perspective is critically important. Mm -hmm. However, I can never take my eyes off of what I'm here to do. And that is to protect, support, and amplify our players. So at all costs. So if it means that I have to be very clear that something is not going to be acceptable, like we are in the situation we're in now, I am crystal clear. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that I have to destroy someone mm-hmm. You know, while this is happening. you know, right This right is right. a unique situation, quite frankly, because having been an expert for the last 20 years and going and testifying in trial, and you walk away, et cetera, you never see those people again, right? Mm -hmm. In this Mm -hmm. particular instance, you still have to maintain a relationship because our goal ultimately is to continue to grow the pie for all of us, right? So Mm -hmm. for the league, the governors, for our players, most, you know, first and foremost. And so if you destroy that relationship while you're trying to negotiate the CBA, The end game is that we've got to move this on. That won't be success for us. Mm -hmm. So I've got to keep my eyes on the prize and recognize what I'm really here to do and to make sure that that happens. It does not mean that we have to be unprofessional or not be respectful of each other, but it does mean that I have to get the job done. Mm
1: -hmm. Did you ever feel any pressure falling up behind Michelle Roberts?
0: No, I didn't. And in fact, I will tell you, I, I think the best thing that you could ever do is to be the first female. Right. And then to have someone come behind. That is the best compliment you could ever have. Right, and Michelle was always a friend to me. I was actually I, I worked for her. I was a um, she was my client when I was at Deloitte. I was her testifying expert, so I was familiar with her. I thought she did an amazing job. So I I really I, you know it was intimidating. Of course, let's be clear. <laughs> yeah, sure. um, but I, I I felt like I could do it. I felt like I was ready.
2: So specifically, pertaining to the CBA, um, we're coming up on the deadline um, to get done the extension correct Mm -hmm. and uh it's been a lot of conversations a lot of different topics surrounding that so just wanted to you know kind of get your um thoughts on where we are um you know where we will be and what the players voices have been um on various topics
0: um you know to be quite honest it is a negotiation until the end. Mm -hmm. There's no question. Mm -hmm. And as I shared previously, I'm not giving up anything that I feel incredibly strongly about Mm -hmm. and that, you know, our players are really invested in. So for me, we have worked really, really hard over this last year to get to what we Mm -hmm. consider the right solution where everybody, all of our boats are rising, right? That's really the objective. And so Mm getting there means that there are some trades at the end and things that you have to consider. And Mm -hmm. there are some things that, you know, are a hard no, right? A hard cap is a hard no. Mm -hmm. And so making sure that those things happen, if it means that on March 31st, we don't have an agreement, we don't have an agreement, but the reality is for our fans, Mm -hmm. things will continue as usual. Business will be as usual. What's important to note is that March 31st is a deadline for opt-out. We, at the PA have no intention to opt out. If the NBA decides that they wanna opt out, they are welcome Mm -hmm. to opt out. June 30th would be the end of the season. We have an agreement for another year, quite frankly. And our players are fine continuing to play the game that they love for another year under the circumstances that we have. So while it is important and critical, because I like to meet deadlines and I'm just as competitive as our players are, Mm -hmm. I also recognize that it's not about giving up you know, something that's critically important to meet a deadline that's really quite fictitious, to be honest.
1: That's real. Well, how about in regards to um, you know the media rights? I know that is going to end pretty soon. And uh, do you see you know media platforms like Apple or Amazon or you know? I think CJ said that eventually you know reimagining a possible. We could be playing games in the metaverse. Yeah. Like, do you, mm-hmm. where yeah. are you trying to take and to set it up? Because I know for sure you know, technology and the future of that, it definitely plays a big part in the NBA as well.
0: Yeah. So in 2025, obviously, we will be looking at what yeah. the next media deal will look like. The good thing for us is people are always going to love live sports, yeah. right? And yeah. so I don't think we have any concern over content and media. Yeah. What it will look like, I think, really remains to be seen. I do think it'll be a combination from some streaming platforms yeah. and television. I think it'll be a combination. People, you know, everybody says now you have your personal device, you know, a Half the world, if I walk down the street on MSG, I see people in their cars watching the game, right? So they're looking at apps on their phone. I I think it will all look very different. And because I'm a person that reimagines the possible, that is part of what makes Mm -hmm. this negotiation so challenging, right? Because I don't know where we're going. I don't think anybody really knows. Mm -hmm. We all can hypothesize as to where it's going to be. But I'm committing to something for a long period of time that will take us through the media time. Mm -hmm. So I've got to make sure that I am putting us in a position that we have options if things end up in a very different place. So that's also complicated, the CBA as well.
2: And I have a, a very technical question regarding that. What are your thoughts on the, um, the local media um, situation that's happened with bally uh, sports? Mm-hmm. And that is kind of changing the scope of, you know, how the league, looks at those games surrounding the nationally televised contracts with the ESPNs and the Turners.
0: Yeah, so I mean, you're right, and we have Sinclair and all mm-hmm, of those mm-hmm. things, so 16 of our, our local RSNs are now, we got to figure out how to run yeah, those on, a national, networks, pla- on yep. a national platform, and so it, it really is a game changer, quite mm-hmm. honestly, and it is something that we're trying to figure out, how can you make that happen? The good thing for us, if I may be honest, is that we're about to head into playoffs, right? And mm-hmm, most of mm-hmm. the playoffs are nationally televised, mm-hmm. so the local the rsns we don't have to be as concerned about so Mm -hmm. the timing is a good is good for us Mm -hmm. but and i think that we have enough cushion to get us prepared for next season that's the thing that you know gives me some safety is that i think just given the timing of where we are we'll we'll find ourselves to be in a better position
2: and speaking of going into playoffs and you know teams leveraging position and players being healthy for the playoffs the big topic is load management. Mm-hmm. So, this is like a round table discussion. Um a lot of the talk around load management is players don't want to play. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to figure out how we can change that narrative or how the narrative even got to the players don't want to play. And as we've talked about so many times, it's rarely up to the player to say I'm not playing tonight. That's right. You know Nine times out of ten, it's the team scheduling out. I mean, CJ McCollum's done a great job speaking on it. I think he was talking to JJ Redick on ESPN in terms of before the season starts, the trainers are telling him exactly which dates he'll low manage that Mm -hmm. he won't play. That's right, and it's hurting us. I would say from you know just our fans and their voices. And it's, uh, I always think of the word lobbyist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know what I mean? And it's a group that, you know, kind of leverages the public attention uh, to be on your side. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, kind of talk about, you know, how you've thought about, you know, not writing, but just getting that voice um for those to hear you know what the real is behind load management
0: yeah so you know you're right Andre there's two things first of all there is load management and then there's injury management and there has to be that distinction first mm-hmm. and fo- foremost right mm-hmm. you're mm-hmm. coming back from an injury and you know how much time you need to be on the floor versus off- so that we can make sure people can our players mm-hmm. can play for the long run right mm-hmm. that's the objective there mm-hmm. um when it comes to load management it, it is disturbing quite honestly that the perception is that our players don't want to play. Our players want mm-hmm. to play. Yeah. They love to play. They take pride in the fact that they have 82 games in a season, or that you know they have back-to-backs. I mean, th- this is something they're incredibly proud of, and they're mm-hmm. geared up and ready for it. And even you know when I did the Tech Summit at All-Star, Mark Cuban said it is not our players. You know, you've got our governor saying it's not our players. I don't know how that narrative got out there. What I do know is because our sport, oftentimes you're looking at an individual player and people come to a game to see an individual player. So what happens is we have all of these constituents that we have to be responsible for and to think about.
2: And with that, I'm seeing the average years of service are going down because I'm seeing a lot of young guys teams are giving up on them a little earlier. Mm-hmm. And Draymond spoke on this. I thought Draymond had a great point when he said, you know, it's, it's not on the player all the time if, if he's considered a bust or not. You know, did the team develop him? Mm-hmm. Or did the team put him in a position? And we've had a lot of conversation with other players talking about some of our youngest younger teams are having the issues whether it's off the court or immaturity, or you can see, you know, spats with a coach on a bench where there mm-hmm. is no veteran presence, um, but to that, you know, there's a caveat there. Why is it that because player security is a pillar of a union, mm-hmm. you want a player to be able to work for mm-hmm. as long as possible in that job? Yes. But the younger you get, you take away those older jobs, and I feel like the veteran players are becoming like the NFL running back where it's not as valued,
1: but it's a very valuable position.
0: It's an incredibly valuable position.
1: Uh, no doubt. Well, we have a segment called Guns and Butter. Um, mm. We say it every time on the, on the pod, but people think of, think of it as a macroeconomic you know, principle, but actually it's from the movie uh, Baby Boy. Yes. Have you ever seen that movie yes. with, with yes. Veen Rains? And yes. he's talking about guns and butter. And um, he discusses like the, you know, the micro decisions that you make that may not seem huge in a moment. But they uh, pay dividends, usually, you know. In retrospect, what have you done where you think you know you made a small decision and just catapulted you up to be you know the, the strong woman you are?
0: Yeah. So uh, there are probably so many things. I wouldn't say there's one singular moment. So one mm-hmm. I think of quickly as kindness. The other I think of is I, I'm always talking about this pie, and I alluded to it earlier because I think it's important even for our players around performance is the P, I is for image and E is for exposure. And Carla Harris writes about this. And she says that, you know, typically as minorities, as females, we focus on performance Mm -hmm. and we spend 90% of the pie really focused on performance and very little on image and exposure. And the reality is, is that the people Mm -hmm. that we see that are the most successful, it's because they are spending time in that. And when she refers to image, she's not talking about, you know, what you look like, it's about how you show up, sort of the confidence you exude when you walk into the room you know exposing yourselves to things that make you feel uncomfortable and you know growing up in a really small town and going to a public school most of my life up to the eighth grade with my brother who was also in public schools but for me i thought gosh i got to the point where i you could decide to go to another high school mm-hmm. and i thought mm-hmm. wow Maybe I should consider doing something different. Like we didn't certainly didn't have the means to do that. Mm-hmm. God bless my parents, um, because I was like, you know what? I want to go to St. Mary's Reich because I wanted to do something that was different. And I didn't know that that meant that I was going to be exposed to something else. Unfortunately, I also didn't appreciate that I'd be, you know, one of two in a class of two hundred that was African American. Mm-hmm. But that was about getting the exposure to things that I may not have been able to. And so learning more about. The law learning more about traveling internationally i hadn't even been on a plane at that point right and so learning those things and getting exposed to those things i see your eyes getting bigger no plane (laughs) and not getting exposed to that earlier it just it was a game changer Mm -hmm. even sitting at you know people's homes and they're having dinner parties and you're seeing how those things are done and you know you it's sort of like being a little fly on the wall Mm -hmm. that's what it did for me because then i could imagine something different right Mm -hmm. and when you're you know Kind of secluded, and you're being protected, and you don't have the means. You know, this was a way to sort of be that child in the room. So, as I think about how that impacted me, I think it really was huge for me. Mm-hmm. It really was.
2: Um, and I'm, I'm gonna go back earlier right now with this question. So, give me your educational background and um, your credentials uh, to let everybody know who you are and what you've accomplished to. Be prepared and well equipped
1: to succeed in this position. And yeah, because I've read that, was it you guys interviewed forty people, correct? Right for this position. Oh, oh, we interviewed forty, but the mm-hmm.
2: candidate list was like I don't know, a couple hundred. Yeah, so the, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: even then to so really, and it was filled with former. Politicians, yep. former players, players, yep. music, CEOs, CEOs. Mm-hmm. So, I like, to really say, mm-hmm. to take that case. See, yeah, and- I got
0: the imposter syndrome coming on <laughs> now. No, well, well, Dre doesn't like
1: anybody. <laughs> so, to say yes to something, I, I truly want to hear even deeper how you got into that because Dre likes nothing at all, <laughs> whatsoever.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I will. You know, first of all, it is a blessing. There's no question, but just like you guys, I, you know, I was raised with a mother and a father who were very clear that you had to exceed expectations, mm-hmm. right? That, you know, just showing up was not enough. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, passing was not enough. You had to do more. And, you know, that hold twice as good or, you know, more than most people. And I actually didn't really know what that meant. I just knew that I had to keep driving. And, you know, Andre, you mentioned before, my mother was pregnant with me in high school and I was born in July and she went off to college in September because it was, she knew education was an equalizer and she had to keep going. And so I had family members, et cetera, that were helping me. And so to some extent, I think I, I feel a little bit of guilt, like I've got to prove myself. I've got to do something. But I think she was just teaching me, you had to do, you had to be amazing. You had to Mm -hmm. reimagine sort of what, you know, being pregnant, single mother at 18 would look like. And so it taught me that I had to do that too. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think just looking at the whole concept, I don't know if you ever read this book and I know you both they're so well read. But George Frazier wrote this book called Success um, Runs in Our Race. And he gave this example of an iPhone. And you probably don't know this, but prior to 2007, there wasn't an iPhone. Can you imagine? <laughs> I was right? in the league before that. Yeah. Right? Okay. I'm that a old. You black Exactly. I was a black bear, yeah. Or the little flip StarTech. Yeah. <laughs>
1: the Razors were the best phones. Um, so. The Razors were good. Yeah, that was a good time. Oh,
0: okay. <laughs> Who are your no, I'm just <laughs> <That'd be great. laughs> But I literally remember like having this great StarTech, and people would stand in line for hours for the iphone right Mm -hmm. because it was amazing Mm -hmm. and whereas your other phone you're willing to donate or even throw away right so it was a quick reminder. And he tells the story like, people were willing to throw away something that was good for amazing. Mm. And so I've always thought about, like, what do you have to do to be amazing? So my goal was I was going to be a lawyer because growing up in Southern Maryland, like, the only people you saw that were successful were doctors or lawyers. Mm-hmm. And so clearly I had to be one of those and I didn't like blood. So that wasn't happening. Mm. And so I decided I was going to go to law school immediately right out of undergrad. And the reality is, I love business. And usually you went to law school to avoid the numbers. And I was going to law school and I love the numbers. Mm. So this is now 25 years ago, 27 years ago. And no one did JD, MBA. Now it's much more popular, Mm -hmm. but at that time it was unheard of. And I remember going to the Dean and saying, huh, one in four people in Washington are lawyers. One in four professionals in Washington are lawyers. Like what's going to make me amazing? Mm -hmm. And I thought, If I got my MBA and I had a law degree and so that was part of what made me decide to do that but it was also because I really had a passion for the numbers I loved solving problems and doing those things so I got out of law school and MBA program and people were like this is great what are we going to do with her now because nobody knows what you do with it so it was investment banking or tax. tax Yeah. So I decided I was going into tax because I didn't want to move to New York City at 20. Now, can you imagine that? Look, this is where God is laughing. Like, look at you now. right? And I love love it. That's right. right. So in my mind, I didn't know exactly what to do. But quite frankly, going to work for the big five at that time was the best training ground. Mm -hmm. I mean, we worked all night. We pulled all nighters. We did all of the things that we needed to do to be to make sure that our clients were successful. Right. Mm -hmm. And all things being considered, I could have probably stayed at KPMG for the rest of my life. But Enron happened. It was time Mm -hmm. to sort of figure out something new, something different. I could have stayed at KPMG, but it wasn't going to be playing to my passions of forensic accounting work. And so I decided probably one of the, the second time I took a risk in my life, I appreciated that taking risk really mattered. My mother would say that fruit is on the limb. I now tell my boys that fear can't stand for forget everything and run, but rather face everything and rise. And they have to choose to rise. And I feel like that's what I did. I could have stayed at KPMG, but I actually had people who wanted to go with me that were like, where are you going? Mm -hmm. Arthur Anderson had fallen and they had started. Anderson had actually started a new um, company called Huron in Washington, but they didn't actually have anyone working there yet. And so, Here we go back to this entrepreneurial spirit. I'm like, I can do this. Meanwhile, just had my first son. I don't know what I was thinking, but I was convinced I could figure this out. We started with 12 people. We grew to about 180. We went public two years after I was there. Obviously didn't negotiate well enough because I'm still working, (laughs) but it was a great experience to go through all of that. and It gave me an opportunity really to build my brand. And so here, fast forward, we then decide we're going to sell off Huron and we sell off our advisors practice to Grant Thornton, but I was doing so much global work. I was working in Brazil and in China and in Europe, and they didn't have the platform to be able to service our clients abroad, whereas Deloitte did. But it was kind of scary because I went from being our co-CEO of our advisory practice to Now being a line partner. Right. And to some extent, obviously, I appreciate now how significant that was. But then I thought, I'm going to take a step back. And you talk about the imposter syndrome and like feeling like, oh, my God, are they going to think I'm worth it or that I should be here? It was really, really hard. But it was the most amazing experience that I've ever had. And they allowed me to continue to grow and to continue to do things. And I learned about the imposter syndrome and I learned to quiet that voice a little bit. And so it only rears its head like days like today or the first day I walked into this office. Um, But I've learned that you can actually use it to be better. Mm -hmm. That's why I over prepare and I overwork because it's what drives me is to make sure people know I belong here, I'm supposed to be here, or that I'm going to do what I'm I'm set up to do. And so that's probably really what drives me. So fast forward I in 2017 in Washington DC very very challenging time obviously we had a change in our administration in Washington DC and you know people were not very kind there was a lot going on and they were like Tamika we're gonna make you managing partner and I thought oh my god First of all, I was convinced that they had only interviewed me because they needed someone black to interview, right? (laughs) And, you know, you check that off in your mind, like they can't be serious. (laughs) And then I remember Sam Silver, who is still a great partner and friend to this day, was like, no, it is you. This is your time. You deserve this. And it was a a ride from there. It was just such an amazing experience. But I learned so much that I could then apply to this. So I'm really grateful. So thank you for the opportunity to share that.
1: Man, that's amazing. Big <laughs>
0: boy.
2: <laughs> I'm listening like, God, damn. <laughs> I, I want to touch on the W. You know, we talk about the W a lot. Um, and it's, you know, I just kind of want to be candid about it. It's a s- sensitive subject because uh, obviously the, the game is growing. You know, we're getting better numbers, better viewership. Um, we got a great TV deals. Um, you know, we're constantly interacting and working with uh the, the ladies from the W. And I just want you to touch on, you know, what the league has done or what the union has done uh, for the W, what we will continue to do and what you've done for them. You know, you worked on their collective bargain agreement mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm. And so I just want you to touch on the W and where do you see their future?
0: Yeah. So first of all, I do believe that it's, up and coming, right? Mm -hmm. I think that there is so much potential in terms of what they will do and what we'll continue to see them doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So to your point on the 2020 CBA, the, the biggest thing there is that we were able to add in shared revenue, just like, you know, you all have. And I think that we are on the cusp of seeing where our women will have the opportunity to share in the revenue. I think that'll be a game changer. I think that's going to make a huge difference. We won't have as many people wanting to go to play you know, internationally before they want to play here in the U.S. So I think it's going to change the game. I think people are going to see it very differently. You're going to have more people investing in W teams. I think you see it as an opportunity for expansion. So it is definitely, definitely on the rise. In terms of the union, I could not be prouder of our men and their support of the women. Um, to your point, I mean, obviously we have individual players that are engaged. But even as a PA, we support them financially. We have shared offices with them. Uh, we go to market together when we can. I just I think that it is, while I know it's a story that isn't told very often, mm-hmm. um, it is essential that it is because they are all in. Mm-hmm. Our players are all in with our women to make sure that they're successful as well.
2: And, and so speaking on, you know, taking on all that you have to take on with this particular job and, you know, not only an African American woman, but a mother um and I'm just asking as a mother not to say that it's tough, but it is tough. you know you know being a mother is just a different type of role that none of us can even try to imagine like we can't reimagine the possible that <laughs> that's that's the the, the exception you. to the rule <laughs> um but you know, what are some of the things that you've had to struggle through um you know, being who you are in a position that you've you brought yourself to?
0: Oh, well, thank you very much for asking. I think, you know, first of all, my youngest son was... Coming up on his senior year, and this job is in New York, and I knew that I was going to have to move to New York. And, you know, at first I was like, oh, it's no big deal because I always worked, you know, all week. And it was, you know, it didn't matter if you were really home during the week, right? Because they barely saw you anyway. So I thought I could do that. It's just like being at work during the week and you're home on Fridays. But then you also, it hits you that like it's their last year, right? Mm-hmm. And gratefully, I am so grateful that I have a husband who is a true partner in every sense of the word. Who recognizes that you know he has to put in more or do things so he is reimagining the possible for sure because he has really been like our rock right he has made sure that things are going smooth he was applying to colleges with rope when you know he went off to college and was playing football and dealing with those things he's you know Reese's manager for for bass fishing and to some extent I get a little jealous sometimes because I think I'm, I'm missing it or they were talking about prom coming up and you know I've got all these ideas right like I would have I was like, Reese, you asked a girl and you you just did a poster. I'm like, do you write it? I'm like, you should have told me. I would have bedazzled it up and, you know, all of the things that you would want to do. But it's hard. And one day someone asked Reese, um, how do you feel with your mother being in New York? And he said, you know, it's fine because during the week we're all so busy anyway. But in the last couple of months because of CBA, I have not been able to go home on the weekend. And that has like I feel the, the strain of that and, you know, making sure that I'm Still, that they know that they're still a priority to me. And and that has been challenging, there's no question, but I think it does take sort of this village to make sure that mm-hmm. these things are happening. Mm-hmm. And also recognizing, you know, everybody knows, like you get into like day 12 and I'm like, oh my God, I've got to see my boys. Like right. if it's on, they have to drive up, they have driven up because you know it, you do miss them. And the one thing I remember specifically about the interview process, I'm not sure if you remember this, Andre, you were there and CJ said to me, he had not had his first child yet. And he goes, how in the world mm-hmm. do you do this? Like, how could you possibly do this? And it hadn't dawned on me because I've always done it, right? I watch my mother and father do it. I've done it since the boys were babies. I told you we started a new company when I had a one and a half year old. So like, it's all I know. Mm-hmm. But when I'm reminded about the things that you miss and, um, you know, those things, moments, right? It's It's hard. It's hard. And then you have, you know, all of these things that are going on constantly. You got people criticizing you and you got security issues, you have threats and, you know, all kinds of things that just make it, you know, very challenging. But again, I try to keep my eyes on the prize and what I'm here to do and to make sure that that gets accomplished. So that is what drives me, quite frankly, because I know my boys will grow up and I want to make sure, one, I'm a good role model for them. I had my son, Roke, sent me a message last week and he said, mom, you got this. Like he's coaching me. You got this. You go in there and you tell him like he's going through this thing. And I think that's a really Mm -hmm. positive thing for them to experience too.
2: Well, to the boys, I want to tell you, thank you for uh, being patient and uh, being understanding because uh, your mother is needed. Um, And so, you know, with ending, uh, we appreciate your time and your energy and your passion. Um, And we also appreciate, you know, Everything you've done that led you here to help you, not even help you, but put you in a position to help us. Um, So we really appreciate you. And uh, I know we have a lot of players listening. Um, It's funny, I'm on the court sometimes and a player will come up to me and say, I listen to the podcast. It's so weird to me. And so um, I'm just really, really happy and excited that a lot of our players um, who aren't as involved as they should, but, you know, they get it. Um, they will get a better understanding. And we continue to uh, grow as a unit, um, as 450 players. You know, you're our CEO, you're our boss, you're our motherly figure. And so uh, just thank you so much. Uh, very inspirational story. You know, I have uh, two daughters. Um, so, you know, I'll make sure they listen to this. The five-year-old can probably listen to this.
0: Thank you so much, Andre. Thank you, Evan. Oh,
2: right, thank, thank you. you.